Let us pray. Father, as we come this morning, it's our great desire to worship you both through the music we have just sung and through the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word. And so, Lord, may our, uh, may our devotion to you not be divided today, but may we be singularly focused. May we have hearts that long to hear and to live out and to engage in your word. And Lord, it's our prayer this morning that the words of our mouths would match the meditations of our hearts. And God, that it would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of John in chapter 4. John chapter 4. The title of the message this morning is Satisfaction for the Thirsty Soul. And as we look at this passage in the Gospel of John, we, um, we encounter a passage that's probably familiar to many who are here this morning. It's the story as uh, as Mr. Al said earlier, it's this narrative account of Jesus encountering the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, and so the text is from verse 21, actually, or for verse 1, excuse me, all the way through verse 42. But we'll take the first half of the passage this morning and walk through it. So if you found your place in verse 1 of chapter 4, say amen. Let us read. Follow along as I read. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And she said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and, and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You've correctly said, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one whom you have now, or now have, is not your husband. This you have said truly. And the woman said, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In verses 1 through 6, we have a bit of background that kind of helps us to see the setting of what's going on as Jesus encounters this woman of Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. And history has it that in 722 B.C. the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom, but not the southern kingdom of Israel. And when they captured the northern kingdom of Israel, they deported most of the Israelites, at least most of the Israelites of any prominence, they deported them back to Assyria. And then they also moved in other people into the land of the northern kingdom, into all of that territory. And the result was that the Israelites who remained in that land intermarried with those who had come in, those foreign uh, settlers who had come into the land. And because they had intermarried, the Israelites took upon the form of false worship and the pagan gods, and they became syncretistic in their religious devotion. That is, they had the merging and the marrying of all of these different religions and different ideas about who God was. Those Jews who would then later return to the southern kingdom under the ministry of Zerubbabel and Jeshua around 530 B.C., for they had been taken captive in the Babylonian captivity when the southern kingdom fell. When they were coming back in, they were coming back in to rebuild the temple. And that was the the book of Ezra that we recently walked through where the children of Israel are coming back in to rebuild the temple. One of the things that happened when they were coming back in to rebuild the temple is these Israelites or Samaritans from the northern kingdom came down and they wanted to help them rebuild the temple. But the Jews said, no, you're not, you don't worship the same God that we do. And so you go, you worship your false gods and go. And so they went back up into the northern kingdom and consequently the Samaritans built their temple on Mount Gerizim around 400 BC. The Israelites finished their temple in Jerusalem rebuilding the temple. Another thing though that added to the uh, the, the bad blood so to speak are the uh, the very um, the dividing line between Jews and Samaritans was in roughly at the end of the second century, uh, one of the kings of the southern kingdom, he he went and he destroyed the temple that was there on Mount Gerizim. uh, Mount Gerizim. His name was John Harkanus. He was the Hasmonean ruler of Judah. And so when he destroyed that temple on Mount Gerizim, it really put a rift, continued to, to drive this wedge and this rift between the Jews and the Samaritans. Well, that's part of what's going on. It's been a long history of, of what's been going on between Jews and Samaritans. And there's, there's a lot of bad blood and a lot of uh, division between Jews and Samaritans. Is it light? Can we turn it off? Did it spark? 
It was that one? Okay. <clears throat> All right, if you, uh, if you have a light on your phone, you can get it out to, to read your Bible this morning. All right. Or if you have the text on your phone. Uh, all right. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> in this passage, that, that helps. That was a great transition, okay, from the background to this passage in verse 7, all right? In this passage, what we have is Jesus teaching us and encountering this Samaritan woman. We learn about, in this passage, we learn about presuppositions and prejudices. We, we, we learn about the mission of Jesus and true worship. In this passage, we learn about the nature of belief and commitment. And we're even challenged to consider a paradigm for the nature and, and strategy of evangelistic outreach. Jesus challenges us as he encounters this woman at the well. And then we see that Jesus encounters this woman at the well really through divine direction because it says there in verse 4, intentionally John writes it this way, he says, and he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. He went through Samaria intentionally. Now there's a lot to be said about those Jews who would intentionally go around Samaria so as not to pass through because their, their, uh, their hatred or disdain for one another was so great. And I, I won't comment much on that, but just to say that it says Jesus says he had to go through Samaria. There was an intentionality to Christ going through Samaria and not going around he knew this day and, and he knew this woman before she ever showed up at the well. He has intimate knowledge about her life. And I think so it is for each of us this morning. Jesus knows intimate details about our lives. He engages with us in our everyday mundane existence. He knows each and everything that's going on, that's that we're encountering in daily life. He knows the struggles we walk through. He knows the valleys. He knows the mountaintops. He knows the difficult days, and He knows those great, wonderful, smooth days. He knows the intimate details of our lives, and He engages with us at that point. And we, like the woman at the well, must either engage in the deeper conversation with Christ or walk away brushing off that which we know to be truthful, a truthful rendering of our desperate condition before Him. And so in verse 6, we see Jesus sitting at the well, wearied, He's tired from His journey. This is a portrait of the very humanity of Christ. This is a portrait of his, his weakness and frailty in human flesh that some so often want to deny that Christ really wasn't 100% truly human. We see the weakness that he walked through. He got tired because of his journey and his travels that day. And then in verse 7, in verse 7, the Samaritan woman approaches the well, and Jesus, get the picture, is sitting there, leaning against it perhaps, or at least sitting by the well. And as the woman approaches the well, I want you to notice that her true need was much like ours today. Not physical thirst, but spiritual thirst. 
And the question that we're left posing, or, or wondering, rather, in this passage is, will she comprehend the gift of God? Will she ask Him for a drink? And so this morning, I, I want to begin with the first point by saying, Jesus is the only source of living water that will satisfy the thirst of our souls. Jesus is the only source of living water that will satisfy the thirsts of our souls. Beginning in verse 7, this woman comes, he says to her, give me a drink. We're told in verse 8 that the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. One of the things I notice in this passage, and really throughout all of Jesus' interactions with people in the gospel, is that he's masterful at using the physical reality to teach great spiritual truths. You ever notice that as you read through the gospel? That Jesus is masterful at using these, these encounters and these physical realities that we walk around in and, 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 and these everyday occurrences to teach wonderful, great, deep spiritual truths. He never wastes an opportunity. The physical reality that we're talking about here in this passage is that without water we die. And that's the physical reality. Everyone comes to the well in this day. Everyone needs water. And without water, we die. Water is necessary to sustain our physical lives. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a mission trip that my wife and I have taken into Southeast Asia. It was back in 2005. We, we went there to reach the Nosu people group. Uh, we had one child at the time. Isaac was our uh, our only son, and uh, and we uh, we left him here with her sister, and we took off over across the sea to go and to hand out literature uh, to an unreached people group. Basically, not just hand out, but hide it kind of in wind piles and, uh, and, and, and in the outhouses in the villages. And so the trip was to go and for about three days trek through the foothills of the Himalayas. And as we were trekking through, we would bring all of our supplies on our back and we would, we would camp at night, get up early in the morning, take off the next day and go. And before we left, we met in this one town uh, and we had a missionary who came in who was with uh, a, a missions organization and his name was, we just called him T. And so he showed up and he gives each of us these coordinates and maps, basically, that wasn't a terrain map. It was a, a blank sheet of paper that had dots on it and lines between these dots. And these were the coordinates that we were supposed to hit as we were going and dropping off these. We were, we were handing out the Gospel of Luke in the Nosu language on CD uh, and in writing. And so we were to drop these at inconspicuous places along the route as we were traveling. Well, as we were preparing for the trip, the missionary said, now, there's a hot area here, and so if you know anything about China, if you get caught uh, handing out or sharing the gospel, then you can be arrested, and then they would question you and interrogate you. And so they said, this is a hot spot. We want you to, we want you to go through the valley that's between this point and this point. And so as we... Um, as we wake up the next morning, so we're out there, we're, we've been trekking for the afternoon, we settle down that night, wake up the next morning, and we are heading from this point to cross the valley and avoid the hot spot, just cross the valley and, and go to the next side. Well, I'm, I'm thinking in my mind of valley. Have you ever seen Little House on the Prairie? Like that valley walking through a field? 
Well, that's not exactly the valley that we were going through and to cross. And so, in fact, the valley that we were going to cross was uh, it was a very steep ravine. And we tried and tried. In fact, uh, it got to a point where I kept my backpack on for some reason, my trekking pack. And then I began to trek down the side of the mountain to try to find a way that we could go around uh, or just to try to find a way that we could cross this valley. And about 30 minutes into it, I get to a place that's about a sheer 3,000-foot drop-off. There's just no way that we can go any further. But I have, um, I've had this backpack on the whole time, and it's hot. I'm sweating. I'm losing water. Uh, I don't have any water because I've already drank all the water that I had in my supply. And it takes another hour just to come back up. And by the time I get to the top, I'm just spent. So I drink all the water from... Uh, from everybody in our group, it was me and Tara and one other couple, and I, I drink their water as well. They graciously gave me their water, but we didn't get too much further down the road, and we couldn't. The, the place that was supposed to have water didn't have any, and so uh, anyway, there was a there was a drought. All that to say, as we went and progressed further into the day, I grew weaker and weaker and wasn't able to continue to move to the point that I would take a few steps and just fall down, and I'd take a few more steps and fall down, and I'd get up, and at one point. Um, to my chagrin, Tara had to carry my backpack uh, because I had grown so weak. Um, and so we, we had even traded backpacks. Then we were trying to pay the locals to carry the backpack for me. They had found the literature that we had handed out, and they had come, and they were walking after us, and we couldn't converse with them because they, weren't, they didn't speak Mandarin, and that was the only language that we had to converse with, with anyone. We had that on cards, but uh, they were asking us, and were visibly bothered that we were leaving material, uh, but we just could not seem to communicate and get them to carry the bag so that we could go. And literally, I would take a couple of steps and fall down. Finally, we got to a place, after this ordeal went on for quite some time, a couple of hours, finally we got to a place where there was a little bit of water. And we're supposed to take water and neutralize it with the iodine tablets and purify it but I had gotten so thirsty and so dehydrated every step that I took my muscles would lock up and I couldn't keep going that whenever we got to that water I just put my head in it and began to drink it and the only thing that would satisfy my thirst and the need for water everything that my physical body needed the only thing that would satisfy it at that point was water and there was no water to be found until later on in the afternoon when we finally reached a small place that had a puddle a pool of water that was coming out of the mountain but i needed water physically to survive i needed this water i was so thirsty and so desperate for water i wasn't even sure if I was going to make it, it had, become that, it had become that serious. But when we get to the water, I put my head in, I begin to drink the water, and by the end of the day, I'm beginning to start to hydrate again, and then overnight was able to rehydrate myself and continue to go uh, throughout the remainder of the trip. But there was that point when all, the only thing I needed, the only thing that would sustain me was water. Physically, I needed the water to continue to go and to continue to survive. 
And Jesus takes these types of physical realities, everyday physical realities that we physically need water in order to survive, and he makes this great spiritual application in our lives that just like we physically need water to survive, so the soul spiritually needs living water in order to survive. And that's what Jesus is saying and doing as he comes to this Samaritan woman He's offering her living water, but I want you to know that in doing so, he breaks through social barriers of culture. Jesus' ministry on earth knows no boundaries. In chapter 3, John, John has already shown us how Jesus engages the social elite the man called Nicodemus, and now he engages a social outcast, the Samaritan woman. The contrast is, is really one of, of two different extremes. There's the professional religionist who is the teacher of Israel, we see in John chapter 3. And then there's the folk religionist who is the Samaritan woman who really kind of has a, a hodgepodge of, of different views. He was powerful and she was powerless. D.A. Carson says, he was a man, a Jew, a ruler. She was a woman, a Samaritan, a moral outcast. And they both needed Jesus. Now the reason that this is such a uh, dramatic point that Jesus would speak to this woman, we even see it in, in chapter uh, verse 27. At this point the disciples came back and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? And so this is, it's odd that Jesus would be speaking with this Samaritan woman. And for Jews, there was a fear. The fear was that they would become ritually unclean by speaking or engaging, rather, with a Samaritan person to come in contact with a Samaritan for, for a Jewish man to associate with a woman in public, especially a Samaritan woman, was just simply outside of social norm. And so in verse 9, her response, therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But you see, Jesus isn't concerned with such trivialities of social inconvenience his mission is about granting life to all who believe on him he comes and he crosses social barriers in order to share the gospel in order to bring the living water and give the living water Jesus's concern transcends any social barriers to the gospel going forward and I just want to ask us a very pointed, simple question this morning. Have we identified, are there any social barriers in our lives when it comes to sharing the gospel with others? We would do well to take note from what Jesus is doing here and engaging this woman that we would remove any social barriers, any hindrances to us sharing the gospel, sharing the hope of the gospel with others. And as Jesus breaks through the social barrier he answers in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That is, as Jesus breaks through the social barriers, he offers the gift of God. In verses 10 through 14, we see this offer of the gift of God. 
And the offer that he, he is offering her, it is eternal life. It's the eternal life that only Christ can bestow. But she doesn't yet recognize his glory. All she sees is the weary traveler sitting there by the well, the Jewish man engaging the Samaritan woman in conversation. But I want you to know that Jesus presents himself as the very fulfillment of the prophets when he says this. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. You see, for the trained Jew like Nicodemus, they would see the gift of God as the Torah. They would see the gift of God as the first five books of the law. But Jesus here is taking this gift of God terminology and he's, he's applying it to himself and presents himself then as the fulfillment of the prophets. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This language causes us to think, or at least me, to think about passages in the Old Testament of the prophets like Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13 where the Lord says to the people of Israel, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Or Isaiah 41, 17, where Isaiah prophesies, and the Lord says the afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none. And their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself as the God of Israel. I will not forsake them. Or Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Jesus is saying... He is the gift of God. He alone is the one who gives this living water. But what is meant by this living water? This living water, it's water that's fresh. It's, it's water that, that is bubbling up. It's water that is running from springs. And most often, this water is not water that's found in a well. This water is water that's found in a, in a current. It's moving It's being supplied from a a source that is not contained in and of itself. It's coming from somewhere else. But normally in a well, this would be stagnant water or water that's just sitting there. And so Jesus, in saying he's giving, he comes to give living water or offers living water, is speaking in a language that this woman understands. Jesus' offer of, of living water, though, it's not as she might would understand that it would be moving, fresh running water. Instead, what does Jesus mean as he offers living water or speaks of this living water? Jesus is, is speaking and, and offering water that satisfies eternally. He is offering the satisfying eternal life that's mediated by the Spirit that only He, the Messiah and Savior of the world, can provide. This is the living water that Jesus is offering. It's like what Jesus says in John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This water, this living water, it's water that flows up. It bubbles over. It wells up. Jesus is telling this woman, this water that I will give you, it's living water. It will quench your thirst. And there are two characteristics of this living water that I, I, I want to point out to us. First, in verse 11, she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? You see, this is a question of source. Where does this living water that you are talking about, where does it come from? Where is this living water from? You see, her thoughts are stuck in the the mundane exercise of her daily routine of coming to the well and and drawing water from the well with a rope and a bucket. And this living water that Jesus is speaking about, it's this offer for, for water that doesn't have to be worked for or drawn out. It's the water that bubbles up and overflows from the spring. And so this is water that quenches the eternal thirst of our souls and transforms, get this, it transforms those mundane, everyday exercises of of coming to the well and, and drawing up water. It transforms those exercises and fills them with life and purpose and identity. That's what the living water does. That's what he's telling her. The second characteristic found in verse 14 is contrasted with the water of the daily routine in verse 13. And that is the source of this water provides unending supply. Look in verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The point is we will never satisfy the eternal thirst of our souls with the physical things that this world has to offer. And I submit to you this morning that just like the woman of Samaria, for far too long many have mistaken their souls craving for purpose and identity in Christ with the physical trappings of the world's promise for purpose and identity in everything but Christ. I think we could cite innumerable examples of people who try to find their sense of identity and purpose in things of the world only to to learn that there's no abiding joy in the things of the world There's no eternal significance in the trappings and things of the world that would seek to deter and and divide and take our attention away from from Christ and the joy that it is to walk with Christ. No amount of fame, no amount of power, no amount, amount of prestige, no amount of wealth, no amount of toys, no amount of accumulation, no amount of things could ever come close to filling us with the joy that comes from having the living water, from the purpose and the identity that is derived from being yoked together with Christ and experiencing the freshness of living water. 
This woman wanted living water. You know, in today's time, in our day, we don't really understand this analogy maybe of going to the well to draw water from the well. We kind of, we kind of miss that analogy. But what Jesus is offering her is water that will satisfy her soul in the midst of every day in the midst of where she's going and in the in the job that she has to do and the role that she's carrying out in life in the midst of everything she's doing it doesn't replace the need for physical water that sustains her body but in the everyday life occurrence that that we go through church having this living water it is that which brings purpose in life it's that which fills us with joy it springs up you don't have to work for this water in fact this water works in and through the believer it bubbles up and springs up into eternal life those who taste the living water know that Jesus is sweet and gives us joy and fills us with purpose and identity and hope. And Jesus is offering her the satisfying water that quenches the eternal thirst of our souls. He offers us this satisfying water that alone can quench the eternal thirst of our souls. We, you know, in today's culture, we try to fill that thirst with many things today. I even think about if you remember, I don't know, back in the 90s maybe, it may have been the 80s when Sprite had their slogan, quench your thirst. Uh, and, and do you remember that? Anybody remember that? Maybe, maybe not. Some people track and some people not. Well, anyway, Sprite had this slogan, obey your thirst, rather. It was obey your thirst, and then it showed Sprite. And this is what would refresh your thirst. And I want you to know this morning that our soul, as God has created us in this way, that we have a thirst and a hunger for the things of God. And the thirst of our soul is that we would have the living water that Jesus provides. That's what he comes and brings to the woman at the well. And that's what he offers to each of us this morning. The second truth I want us to see this morning in this passage is that Jesus exposes sin in our lives that threatens to keep us from the living water. In verse 15 through 26, Jesus exposes sin in our lives that threatens to keep us from the living water. Now we know that Christ himself, by the, by the indwelling Holy Spirit and by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, he certainly does expose sin as we come in contact with Christ. But Jesus, as he comes in contact with this woman, that's exactly what we see occurring She wants the living water. She understands her need for it. But it's still to serve her physical needs. She wants this living water for the wrong reasons. It will make her daily life easier. She won't have to come to draw water anymore because she'll never thirst again. But you know what Jesus does when we come to him and encounter him is he opens our eyes to see our true condition. This is what happens for the woman as she comes to Jesus at the well. He opens her eyes to see her true condition. That is, Jesus exposes the problem in her life. And what is the problem? It's sin. Sin has ravaged her life. 
Sin is the problem in her life. The well was the time for women to socialize. We mentioned it a moment ago. It's it's still like that today in third world countries where women will gather around the well either to get water or even to get water so that, well, for drinking or to get water so that they might wash clothing. But they gather around the well as a time of socializing. But this woman was not able to gather around the well with other women. In fact, she was in bondage to her sin. Her life was tangled in it. Nothing she could do would relieve the reproach and the, that sin had brought on her. In fact, Jesus informs us in verse 18 in this dialogue, For you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. She came to the well in the hottest part of the day. Look back up in verse 6. Jacob's well, so Jesus, uh, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which probably was about noon. And so she came in the hottest part of the day. She came to the well that was outside of the city, presumably to avoid contact with other women due to shame. And so here's this woman coming to the well, and Jesus encounters her, and and as he encounters her, he opens her eyes to see her true condition, and he exposes the problem of sin in her life. Give me this water so I won't be thirsty again. Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. And that's when she says, well, I, I I don't have a husband. And he gets right to the point. And he gets right to the point in her life. And I want you to know something as we as we consider this passage this morning. That yes, Jesus loves his people and he meets us where we are. But he when he meets us right there where we are and we're converted to Christ, we confess him as Lord. It's not that he wants us to stay right where we are. Mr. Al talked about it, this, this growth and, and this growing as believers in Christ. Listen, as, 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 as parents, if we're not teaching and instructing our children, then we're, we're kind of missing the boat, right? I mean, the goal is one day when they grow up that they leave the nest, Right? I mean, we want them to leave home and and become successful, hardworking adults. Most importantly, we want them following God's will. We want to train them in that way. You know, as, as believers, we are to be growing in Christ. And there is this assumption today, or maybe this false mindset or mentality, that, well, when we come to Christ, that's it. We're good. We've got fire insurance, and that's enough. We won't go to hell when we die. But that's not the way that God has designed it, nor desires that we would walk in discipleship with Him. For God desires that we walk with Him and and we would grow. And so, I, I think we see modeled in her life, and we'll see it as we go through the rest of the passage next week, that while Jesus loves us and meets us where we are, He doesn't want us to stay where we are. He wants us to follow Him. And if I'm going to receive the gift of God, then it means this gift of God that he's offering, this living water, if we're going to receive this gift of God and this living water, it it means that something must happen in our life. And if sin has been revealed, then it means we must confess this sin before the Lord. I want to just clue you in here. This is a process that is continually 
ongoing in the life of a believer. Yes, it happens at conversion where we, we initially confess our sin and we repent, but then we are continually brought back to the place of needing to confess our sin before the Lord and repent and, and walk with Him. But some would say in this passage, well, she never confessed, did she? I would point out, though, that she didn't leave. She remained. And I think that shows us her confession If you remember back in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Right. We have here this woman, her sin being exposed before Jesus. She doesn't turn and walk away. Instead, she continues in the conversation. She goes just a little bit deeper. You know, the reality is that when we're in sin, we don't want the light to reveal it. But the truth of the matter is that we can't hide from God. He knows our past, our present, even our future. He knows our thoughts. Psalm 139 tells us this morning, as Jesus by His Holy Spirit works in your life and exposes sin, the question that we must wrestle with is, will, will we remain in the light and, and confess those things before the Lord? Will we be like that Samaritan woman and, and remain there before the Lord, or will we retreat, brushing off this encounter with Christ and not confessing our sin before the Lord, but remaining hardened in it? Secondly, we see that Jesus reveals the truth about God in verse 20. In verse 20, she begins and says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She brings up this place of of worship as something that's significant. I, I don't think it's too... Uh, to change the direction of the conversation. I think, it's, she, I think it's to engage in the conversation with Jesus more. This issue of the Samaritans and their temple on Mount Gerizim and the Jerusalem, uh, the Jews and their temple in, in Jerusalem, it comes into effect here. But in order to understand what Christ says in a moment in reply to her, uh, you need to understand that the Samaritans derived their idea of the temple being on Mount Gerizim because they only ascribed to the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe, they dismissed the rest of the Old Testament canon. And so they only had partial truth. They had, they had some truth, but they only had partial truth. And so Jesus answers her in verse 21. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. This hour that's coming that Jesus speaks about, it's what we've already looked at in, the, in, in past times of, of looking at the hour. It, it looks forward to that moment where Christ is, is crucified on the cross and then He's buried, He's resurrected, and then He ascends His, His exaltation with the Father. This hour that Christ is referring to here, it is the hour of that which is to come at the end of his earthly ministry. But then he tells her in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And I want you to know that Jesus isn't attacking her sincerity. 
in worship as he replies to her in this way. He's not doubting any sincerity she might have in worshiping him. But he's simply saying that the object of their worship is unknown to them. You worship what you do not know. The Samaritans are outside the scope of God's revelation. They don't affirm the the whole of the Old Testament, only the Pentateuch. And consequently, they lack the ability to worship God truthfully. Now, that's significant for the believer today. Being able to worship God in, in spirit and in truth in a moment, as we'll see. Jesus replies, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Not saying that all Jews will be saved, but what he's saying is simply that salvation will come through the Jews and Jesus himself being the very fulfillment of that prophecy. And so in verse 23, he takes verse 21 just a step further when he says the hour is coming and now is. Meaning that not only is the hour of his death, resurrection and exaltation coming, but he himself even right now, even in that moment, he is the object of worship. In chapter 2, John 2, verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. You see what Jesus is claiming here is to be the one who is worthy of worship. And so he says, those who worship the father must worship in spirit and truth for such people. The father seeks to be his Worshippers. And this language is not language that's new to worship in spirit and in truth. For Jesus has already said in in John chapter three that you must be born of water and the spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. And in verse eight of John three, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Our John fourteen seventeen. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. What is Jesus saying? Those that come to the father to worship him. Must first have the living water. Must have the gift of God. This is the gift that Jesus is offering to the woman at the well. It is the gift of identity with Christ. It is the gift of eternal life that comes through Christ. It is the ability to worship Him as the one and only true God. Verse 24 speaks of the nature of God by saying, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. That is, speaks of God's nature, his attribute. He is invisible. He is he's divine, not human. He's life giving. And this combination of worshiping him in spirit and truth has to do with being born of the spirit of God. 
and then believing on the truth that Jesus himself has revealed about the Father. Back to John chapter 1, verse 18, that he, Jesus, is the one who has revealed the Father to us. You see, many come to Christ today wanting to worship him, but wanting to come with their own idea or wanting to come to God with their own idea of, of who God is and all the while avoiding what God has revealed about himself in his word for his people to worship him. What does that mean for you and me? That means that when we come before the Lord Jesus Christ to worship him, that we must be open in our hearts, in our minds to pattern our lives after what God himself has commanded of us and called of us through his word. It means that we must evaluate our own lives up against the standard of of God's word. It means that we must worship him by the indwelling spirit that is within us that he himself has granted to those who believe upon him. And so Jesus reveals his identity and his mission. Verse 19, the woman says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Jesus answers her after verse 25, where the woman said, "I, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am the one who declares all things to you. I am the one who is declaring the truth of the Father to you. I am the one who is declaring, here is how you can worship God. Here is how you come before God, both in spirit and in truth. He's come to reveal the truth about God and to offer living water to all. To all who drink of the living water, Jesus says, come and drink freely, for I have an abundant supply, an unending source. Here's purpose. Here's identity in me, in life. In every day, in all of the mundane exercises of everyday life, walking with Christ and having living water helps us to see the purpose and identity in Christ. It it shows us how we can even show others this life in Christ. It gives us a sense of purpose, of knowing, of, of eternal life, of knowing Him. You don't have to work for this water. Instead, it it springs up from within and will in fact work in and through you, believer. How about each of us this morning as we encounter Jesus Christ? Each of us this morning, are we able to worship him in spirit and in truth? Have we in turn, have we internalized the truth of God's word and begun practicing it in our own life, living it out faithfully in our own life so that when we come to him, we're able to say, Lord, I, I confess the sin in my life and I want to worship you truthfully as you have revealed yourself. Are you willing to engage in in deeper conversation with Jesus as the woman at the well stood there and engaged in conversation even though her sin was being pointed out to her? Will you walk away brushing off the time before him this morning? Believer, has your soul become parched because you've been forsaking that time together with Christ and 
experiencing the joy of the living water that sustains our very lives. Just as the physical water sustains our physical life, so living water sustains our spiritual lives. Are you experiencing the springing up of eternal life daily? Walking in the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to challenge you in that regard this morning, believer. That you would know the joy of walking with Christ daily. That you would experience the joy of walking with Christ. And the living water that springs up from within and overflows in and through our lives. This morning, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've not come to the place where you have your soul has been satisfied with the drink of living water, you, like the Samaritan woman, can confess your sin before the Lord and ask the Lord Jesus to forgive you and to save you, surrender your life to Him, trusting in Him for salvation. I want you to know that I'll be I'll be here in the front if if there's if there's a need that you have and just would like to somebody to pray for you, you can even come forward this morning and just kneel down and pray before the Lord as a sign of your commitment and uh, walking with Christ or uh, however the Lord's leading you this morning. I want to challenge you and encourage you to respond to the Lord Jesus this morning, not to delay, but to respond to what he's prompting in your heart to do. Make those commitments before the Lord and seek his strength. Let us pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we consider our own hearts and and our own uh, attitudes even before you. And Lord, we ask you that you would strengthen us today to respond to your word and to um, surrender our lives to your care and to your leading. Lord, I pray that if any of our souls are parched this morning, that you would refresh us with your living water, your presence, your abiding presence in our life. And if there are any this morning whose soul is thirsting for eternal life, I I pray that you would work in and through them, Lord, to, to help them to see the need for living water, for eternal life, for trusting in you. Lord, we ask you this morning that you be continue to be exalted in and through us in our everyday, in our mundane, everyday life, that we would have your sense of purpose and identity with you as we go through the day. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.